0: Welcome back to One Road Research. I'm here with Roger Pelkey. He's been doing a lot of interesting studies. And first off, Roger, maybe you can give a quick background about yourself, and then we can do a deep dive into some really interesting observations you've been making on climate change.
1: Yeah, thank you, and thanks for having me. Um, I have worked at the intersection of science um, and politics for about 25 years. I originally thought I was going to go into the physical sciences, uh, spent some time working for the House Science Committee in Washington, D.C., and discovered that uh, uh, the, the use and often the misuse of science is a pretty interesting topic to, to study and work on.
0: Great. There's so many things that we could touch on right now. I guess let's start off because our audience is capital markets focus. I see a lot of the analytics that you do referring to, for example, the impact of climate change or the lack of impact of climate change relative to gdp how did you go upon thinking of it in that manner now one thing that's interesting to state though is that let's say from from a global gdp perspective i could argue that some countries obviously are trying to distort their gdp growth to some extent like china and and when you look at the world over there's a lot of intervention towards masking the GDP figure to some extent. So obviously, in some countries that are so adamant on demonstrating growth, are we sure that we're using the right growth metrics, even though it's a highly accepted form of measurement?
1: Yeah, this is a great question. Um, It's related both to the impacts of climate change, uh, both looking backwards and looking forward. Um, but also how we think about emissions reductions, which we could talk about. For me, um, I started working on this topic a long time ago um, in the 1990s, when my mentor, I was working for at the National Center for Atmospheric Research, pointed out that um, you know the period 1991 through 1994 was the quietest period in a half century in the Atlantic for hurricanes, uh, but it was also the most expensive due to Hurricane Andrew in 1992. Mm-hmm. And at the time, people were using economic losses as a proxy for understanding what weather and climate we're doing.
0: Mm. Um, and
1: that was clearly not a good idea, given that more than just extreme weather affects damages. It's, it's where storms hit. It's how much concentrated wealth we have. It's the way we build. So we started doing some work, which you know I've continued for you know, the last two and a half decades, focused on trying to understand economic losses in this long-term picture, Given that society changes, um, we call these normalization studies. And you know, the grossest way to do it the, with a big sledgehammer is to use GDP, right? Um, which is the total economy. Uh, but there are multiple methods that use much finer grain data, such as building stock and tangible wealth in particular locations. And these studies are, are pretty consistent across the board in showing that, at least to date. The primary factor that drives the increasing losses has been, I mean, it's good news. We're we're wealthier. We have more stuff, um, and this is expanding around the world. Um, mm. It's it's not necessarily so far more or more intense extreme weather events.
0: Hmm. Mm. In one observation that I thought about while you were just explaining this is, I know that you do have other studies as it pertains to like landfall and the impact of of hurricanes on landfall and i guess one thing that i would note is coastal line gdp i'd imagine would be much higher relative to say for example the midwest and uh, but obviously i guess you're taking an aggregate the whole gdp but i'd imagine that coastline gdp for like cities and and provinces and states would be representative more, um, would have a larger weighting towards the total GDP figure as well, which would be really interesting because obviously, like you're indicating, there's a lot of wealth there, but a lot of that wealth can also be distorted uh, to some extent. For example, new home sales and then the prices of uh, houses, because they are coastline, are just rapidly increasing. I wonder if there would be a, a way to measure it, like you indicated, by adjusting unnecessary asset price inflation, because that, that can lead to some distortion towards the the decline of the impact that weather might have versus GDP.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it, here's a statistic that's, you know, when I learned it, I found it amazing that fully two thirds of global catastrophe losses over you know, the recent three decades are due to U.S. hurricanes. So obviously, ex- extreme weather and disasters happen everywhere around the world. But if you look at the the loss numbers, um, two-thirds of those numbers come from U.S. hurricanes. And the reason for that, once you think about it, it's fairly obvious. Um, the U.S. Gulf and Atlantic coasts are built up pretty much <laughs> from, from Texas to Maine um, right. with enormously valuable coastal property that uh, when it does get hit, we see these multi-billion, multi-10 billion, billion, even $100 billion um, loss events. Mm. Um, That said, we're seeing uh, around the world similar patterns of growth in coastal locations, which are obviously desirable for personal reasons, but also for commerce reasons. So yeah, the coastal regions are outweighed um, in terms of their contribution to to GDP, but also to their contribution to to losses that we experience due to catastrophes.
0: Right. And I'm assuming that the United States must make up a large percentage of even global GDP if one was to assess this from world GDP perspective as well. Absolutely. Okay. Now, I've also heard, I saw one of your testimonies, I guess in, in front of the Senate, was that? Yes. Yeah. And I did hear someone bring up interesting point. They had said they like, are you measuring when you're talking about landfall? Like, why is that the metrics? I guess you were saying that this is a counter to the economic impact. But then I saw this lady point out the the fact that the frequency of hurricanes uh, from a sheer number count throughout planet Earth has actually increased. Do you know anything about this? And is that a fair interpretation of what's going on?
1: Yeah, we've um, actually researched this um, in some depth, and it's also been summarized by the, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, IPCC, um, just had its most recent report come out um, about three weeks ago. And there's two ways to look at it. So if you're in insurance or reinsurance, um, what you really care about are those storms that that hit land, um, and hit land where there's there's structures that are covered by insurance. Um, okay. We did a study, and we've updated it every year, on landfalls. So this is the number of tropical cyclones, hurricanes worldwide that hit land. Um, okay. We have good, good data all around the world since 1970. Um, for some basins, like the United States, um, the Northwest Pacific, you can go back further in time. But since 1970, there is no up or down trend in the number of storms um, to hit land, um, and there's no trend in the number of um, intense, the strongest storms to hit land. Um, this is also consistent with other research that looks at the intensity, the frequency, the what's called the energy in these storms um, since that time. And this is
0: this taking into account the, the most latest hurricanes that hit Florida as well, which was reported in the news to be... Relatively intense is that is that a fair assumption?
1: Yeah, I mean, and the, the recent um, storm Michael that hit Florida was exceptionally intense. Um, mm-hmm. Final final analysis, we'll have to wait, but it was certainly a Category Four storm. You know, it's a tragic um, anytime a storm wipes out communities. But if you look at the the, the bullseyes uh, along the Gulf and Florida coast. Um, You can say that, uh, you know, in the big picture, we dodged a bullet on that one because it was an enormously powerful storm that hit a relatively low population area. Um, The world has averaged um, over the past 30 years or so um, about five of the strongest hurricanes, five intense hurricanes per year to hit land. This year, we're we're at six so far. We're getting near the end of the year. Um, So it's not at all an unusual year. Um, In fact, one of the more notable features of hurricanes is that from 2005 to 2017, the U.S. went without being hit by one of these intense hurricanes. Mm. So it's really important to take the long view on these issues because, yeah, 2016 and 2017 and into 2018 have seen some uh, more intense storms, um, but that comes after a decade plus long period of not seeing those storms.
0: Right. And could you touch on floods, droughts, tornadoes and wildfires as well?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, So we're in luck because the the IPCC uh, periodically does summaries of the state of the science on uh, extreme weather events. And if you take a look, um, there is really good evidence that the world has experienced more and and longer heat waves uh, in particular. Um, There's a a sharp decrease in cold spells. Um, That's where the best evidence is for changing extremes. There is some evidence, and it's pretty strong in some locations, that there has been what's called increasing precipitation, so more intense rainfall. But we have to be careful because more intense rainfall doesn't necessarily mean more floods. And in fact, the IPCC um, has concluded that it's, it's not yet possible to detect um, an increase or a decrease in major flooding around the world. Same goes for drought. Same goes for tornadoes. Wildfires are, are a bit tricky because those are really mixed up with human settlements, where we build and right. ignition and so on. Um, but there is some speculation, and I think it's safe to say speculation that um, that drying and heat waves are associated with uh, greater wildfires. Um, but that again is complicated by a human signal. Yes. I mean, the overall bottom line is that climate change is real and scientists expect that we may see more extreme events coming in the future. Uh, but we don't want to confuse what's going on now with what's expected in the future. Um, and I know it's it's politicized and this is, you know, it's 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 media friendly. But the state of the science right now is that to date, at least, there's not a particularly strong signal of human caused climate change in in disasters.
0: So when we look on the Internet and we see all sorts of these interesting memes and even these video footages from the likes of National Geographic that are showing us eroding landmasses due to, I guess, um, higher ocean levels. It looks quite extreme, though, Roger, and how, like based on all your statistics, it seems to counter uh the visuals that we're seeing mind you maybe your statistics are more us centric but like how do you even as a scientist you're looking at the empirical data when you're seeing all of these images and they're showing you adjustments in like land what do you think about that or is that due to human intervention by populating in those areas or trying to like create like artificial land masses as well. What, what is the, the explanation and causality for all of this fascinating video and, and uh, satellite imagery?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, as I stated, you know, climate change is real and humans yeah. have a, a significant role in it. Sea level rise is real. Increasing temperatures are real. But at the same time, this, the same research that, that tells us about the reality of climate change also tells us that you know while there are every year extreme weather events like floods, hurricanes, drought, it's we're not yet able to say that those events have increased due to accumulating greenhouse gases so it, it's pretty straightforward of course in the in the debate, people do like to point to the latest extreme mm. event as evidence of climate change. Right. Um, there is this thinking out there that if you tell people the latest hurricane was caused by climate change, um, they might wanna you know, support this or that political action. Um, right. That, that, right. That, that the logic is not well supported, but I think it's perfectly reasonable to say, you know, look, we have uh, a global assessment process called the IPCC. It tells us that accumulating greenhouse gases are making the earth warmer. We see more extreme uh, heat waves Um, But we haven't seen more floods, drought, or hurricanes globally. Um, Those things, I don't think, are at all inconsistent.
0: Now, in terms of – I guess this is one of the biggest debates in the community, right? Is the extent of contribution that, I guess, CO2 emissions through burning fossil fuels is is having on climate change now – it depends, I guess, on your models and your sensitivity analysis. What is your perspective here?
1: Yeah. And again, I, you know, I defer to, you know, the global assessment process that's been put in place since the late 1980s, which, you know, the consensus view of the scientific community is that the warming the globe has seen, you know, over the last half century or so um, is primarily, if not totally due to the emission of greenhouse gases. There is a lot of interesting research out there on the effects of land use and, for example, irrigation, how we change land cover, urbanization, and so on. Um, but that doesn't take away from the fact that um, the emission of greenhouse gases and primarily carbon dioxide um, is a primary driver of changes we've observed in climate and we expect to see into the future. So I don't think there's a particularly strong scientific debate on these issues um, when it comes to policies like the Paris Agreement or, or so right. on. The, the general understanding is that, you know, we're adding carbon dioxide to the atmosphere. It's accumulating. It's, uh, it's caused some changes we've observed and it may cause more and we may not like them. So the science from that standpoint, is pretty robust and I wouldn't expect it to change anytime soon.
0: And, and what about global temperatures over like the history of the earth? Uh, does it not go in cycles? And are we not part of uh, maybe a potential uptrend in this cycle?
1: Um, yeah, of course, um, there's a long, long history. Uh, but in terms of, I mean, that's interesting to my my climatologist colleagues and so on. But from the standpoint of climate policy, extreme events, um, things that decision makers um, in the public and private sector care about, those debates and questions aren't particularly relevant to understanding how the climate might evolve over, you know, the next half century and what steps might be done to, to reduce emissions.
0: Right. But I guess in terms of understanding the future impact that we could have on weather, it really depends on the variables and the extent of sensitivity in all the different models that we're looking at. Right. Cause it, I'm sure everyone has, I heard Russia has a different model relative to, other institutions as well. Is, is that fair to say?
1: Yeah, when it comes to I mean, I would point to extreme events. So these are the things that focus people's attention. Um, as you say, they, there's a lot of imagery and they're, they're wrapped up in the, the politics of the issue. There's a lot less certainty about how patterns of extreme events might evolve into the future um, than there is about the fact that things are getting warmer. They're expected to get warmer um, and so on. So. Um, when it comes to dealing with extreme events, it's, it's not possible to accurately anticipate how many droughts the world will have in the 2050s or how many right. hurricanes. And people tend to pick the, the scenario or model that you know, they like best or best suits their need. Um, from the standpoint of decision-making, it's important to have resilience, to be robust, and, and realize that almost exclusively, all of the things that we would expect to occur in the future under climate scenarios, or things we expect to occur today, perhaps there'll be more of them, perhaps they will be more intense. But if you're in Miami, you're going to prepare for hurricanes, uh, whether they go up by 15% or down by 15%. The city could be decimated by a Category 5 storm under any of these scenarios.
0: Right. So I was speaking to Dr. Patrick Michaels as well, and he kind of indicates that because I questioned him, I said, okay, look, there's obviously a big academic community that's studying this constantly. And what sounds interesting, and I think you've, I think you follow the events of like the likes of Climategate is, if your data is empirical, and there's statistical significance behind your data sets, why is it that the scientific community, which is supposed to take good data and try to make good policy decisions, potentially kind of put this information in the back burner for some objective when, for example, you know, I haven't spent that much time recently in academia, but I'd assume that if one is an undergrad or one is doing a postgrad and maybe doing a thesis on on climate change, hypothetically, that that individual which potentially could go into a position like yours conducting some of the kind of studies that you're doing in the future um would want to maintain some i guess integrity in terms of the studies that they're producing because it sounds like one of the the ideas here is there's some big potential conspiracy theory that people are pushing an agenda and now we know the reason why but why would academia be so heavily involved in something like that? And particularly when, like, you know, I, I study the ethics of science and the philosophy of science. Why would you not want to do that? And and I think one of the key things is in capital markets, when we're building financial models and economic models, I'm not interested in in distorting the numbers. Because if I'm distorting the numbers, then that means I'm not being right. And to me, being right is so important, I guess because I'm so economically incentivized to be correct in my assessment in the stock market, for example, or some investment or speculation. I have no biases because I have to be a pragmatist in finding, you know, alpha opportunities and market inefficiencies. So why is it in a science or an art, whatever you want to call the assessment of climatology? Why would people be so skewed, which is what, you know, you hear about?
1: Yeah, I mean, so there's a lot there to to unpack. But I mean, one thing I say to to colleagues um, when talking about extreme weather events and and damages and losses is, um, you know, if 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 you really want to get an accurate sense of um, how the market sees these issues, look at the the trends in reinsurance pricing over recent years. Um, And reinsurance has had a hard time you know, maintaining uh, a hard market because uh, there's more capital available um, than there has been payouts because there hasn't been, uh, from their standpoint, there hasn't been enough disasters. Right. Um, But more generally, um, you know, of course, scientists are people and scientists have views and, and, you know, the climate issue is is pretty intense and there's some hardball politics. Right. Um, But but that said, you know, there's no conspiracy. Um, There are mechanisms in place to try to um, summarize and and bring forward the best evidence, data, and science that's available. Um, and you know it's interesting because about a decade ago, when the the IPCC would produce its assessment reports, it would often be criticized from from people on the right side of yeah. the political spectrum um, for being too you know at the time they used the word alarmist. Interestingly, when the recent IPCC report came out about three weeks ago. Um, it was mostly criticized by people on the political left for not being sufficiently scary. <laughs> right. So um, when science is um, summarized and put out there, of course, um, there are always going to be legitimate minority views. Science evolves. But I mean, for me, I think sometimes we overthink the climate issue. Um, the reality is, you know, no one argues that we're putting massive amounts of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. Um, and if, if that process creates any risks whatsoever that's you know above zero, then we ought to be thinking about taking action. Add on to that the fact that climate is always variable and uncertain. We're building out infrastructure all over the world as, as people get wealthier sure. um, in exposed locations in a lot of places. So the idea of limiting or even working towards stopping the emission of greenhouse gases and better adapting to climate um, to me, is it's kind of a no-brainer, and a lot of the scientific arguments are um, are a sideshow. Um, they get wrapped up in the politics, but they're not going to change the, the, the fundamental core of the issue.
0: You know what's so interesting on that very statement is when I think about the oil-industrial complex, I'm sure they contribute a significant portion also to global GDP. I guess your own recommendations, say, say for example, if we understand – about people's contribution to climate change. And we go with that. That's an undisputed fact. The issue, though, is imagine the impact on GDP if we try to introduce alternatives that might not yield the same kind of, I guess, economic impact. Because to date, according to what I understand, there is no substitute to the amount of energy you can produce through one barrel of oil. And, and so many things can be created off of a barrel of oil, especially once refined. You know, it would be nice if uh, solar could replace that, but just the amount of sheer energy that can be produced with the current technology that we have, it's just not economically feasible. And I guess the best thing that the oil industrial complex can do is explore opportunities like that of, of natural gas, And I'm assuming that what the left or what the right does when they look at your data is say, well, we still don't have clear indication about our impact on extreme weather, which what the left is saying is happening all the time, especially when you watch like the amazing news coverage. It looks like every day is the potential end of the world because of what we've done. And I think it sounds like you're kind of entangled in this fascinating web between to uh, polarizing sides, but your data uh, does say something. And then to me, what it sounds like that I kind of have to just like, I just kind of have to keep the status quo to some extent. I'm aware that this is happening. I don't know about the sheer causality that we're having on extreme weather, but then I know that there's no other great alternatives um, unless the economic incentives are there. And the issue is that when when the state is subsidizing green energy, they're doing so for a reason, because it's not gener- yielding the same amount of energy and companies haven't found opportunities to generate, uh, you know, significant profitability in doing so. So that's kind of like that's kind of I feel like we're kind of just like stuck based on all the information that we currently understand.
1: Yeah, you know, I think um that's a pretty good uh, summary of where the, the issue is. If you look at um, rates of, of decarbonization of the global economy, so you look at how we're getting more efficient and uh, how we use energy, and you look at the proportion of uh, energy that comes from, from carbon-intense sources, from fossil fuels, right. um, neither of those metrics have, have changed their historical trend based on climate policy. Right. So for all the sound and fury in the big picture, um, globally, there's not much evidence that we've changed from what we've always been doing. Um, right. A few years ago, I, I coined a term called the Iron Law of Climate Policy, which says that you know whatever we decide to do on climate policy, um, appreciably reducing or, or trying to halt GDP growth is, is going to be a always going to be a non-starter. Right. Um, and and so the way that if we really want to decarbonize the global economy, the way we do that is um, through technological substitutions. We come sure. up with sources of energy that provide um, either present or, or ideally better energy services. And if that happens, then a lot of the politics goes away because right. there are vast parts of the world where there's not a lot of wealth and there's not a lot of access to to energy. And dirty coal energy is better than no energy. Right. So. So the route toward um, dealing with this issue is um, through technological innovation, which we, we do pretty good. You know what's yeah, so ahead.
0: interesting is the inspiration for the technological innovation, based on uh, my experiences in, in free markets, is actually high energy prices. So that that's – and and we've seen that in terms of um, horizontal drilling and the new abilities of the, the United States to become a massive – um, well, fossil fuel exporter, but I think that's the cue, and I, I've always looked at that. Like whenever I want to understand about the economy, I need to look at consumer spending, the signals. Whenever I want to understand about commodity prices, I need to, uh, or the commodities overall, I need to look at the commodity price as an indication of interest and demand. We've seen that with cryptocurrencies. When Bitcoin is $17,000, people are heavily inspired to go into the space. Not everyone's going to make Bitcoins. People are going to make enhancements of cryptocurrencies or their own cryptocurrencies. I think the same thing applies for the energy space. Is like There's got to be the economic incentive for the private sector to come up with a solution. And as you've seen, every time the state s- seems to intervene into the space, It just the reality is it doesn't take away from the fact that we're just not able to yield the same amount of energy and generate the same amount of profitability for the alternatives, basically.
1: Yeah, there's I mean, there's a few things there. I mean, one is that um, for a long time and I think there's still this view out there, um, the idea that the way to, to motivate an energy transition was to make dirty energy more expensive and therefore favoring. Clean energy substitutes. Mm-hmm. Um, it turns out that that shocker people don't want their energy to be made much more expensive. Um, right. It drag on the economy. So right. so there's been I mean while people will pay you know some some cost for perceived environmental benefits um, you're not going to be able to to you know increase a gallon of gas right. by a factor of two for example maybe um, right. not by 10 percent. Um, so there has been a shift towards the other way around to be thinking about well how do we make clean energy cheaper. Um, And the the example, you know, the best example, um, and you pointed to it, is the technologies associated with fracking, um, Mm. the the horizontal drilling, um, so on, Um, which really, if you take a look at that history, um, it has some important lessons. That was not simply the product of, you know, a free market private enterprise coming up with new technologies. Um, Starting in the 1970s, the U.S. government, the Department of Energy, um, worked with private sector companies to uh, invest in um, technologies that at the time were not ready for market, were not profitable, um, and helped to uh, get them to a point where, through public-private partnerships, they became viable technologies 30 years later. Interesting. So there is an important role, and we've seen it, you know, whether you look at the components of your your iPhone or, or, or fracking, uh, where, you know, public investments in innovation um, do bear fruit, but sometimes it takes many, many decades. So I and many of my colleagues have argued that the sooner we get focused on innovation, um, recognizing that there's an important role for the public sector and the private sector, and whether that innovation is carbon capture or it's advanced nuclear or battery storage uh, or advanced solar, we don't know where technological breakthroughs will come through. But just like fracking, the minute that we discover a viable technology that makes energy cheaper, It expands throughout the marketplace. I mean, coal in the United States is is going away not because of environmental campaigns, but because of the simple economics of fracking that have made natural gas far more preferable.
0: Yeah. When I think about fracking, I'm thinking about mostly the 2000s, where it starts to become a little bit more mainstream and acceptable. And I'm thinking about the fact that a majority of these oil and gas companies were able to absorb a large amount of debt in order to utilize some of this technology due to the fact that you had $150 barrel oil. What I mean by the $150 barrel of oil is that it inspires the oil industrial complex to look for alternatives, like you said, maybe cheaper forms. But what I mean is you also need a cue, an incentive, just like an indication that, wow, there is a value to energy, And in whatever iteration or form factor that I can create energy or find energy and extract energy, at least I know that there is going to be some nice economic incentive to do so. So, for example, if you had like $150 barrel oil today, someone might say, okay, look, I'm going to really – Work my butt off and try to really innovate solar technology so that I can capture a piece of this action. Another important note on this is that for these new exploratory technologies, you need the balance sheets that are necessary to absorb this risk. So, for example, what I mean by that is like, let's say 50% of ExxonMobil's uh, financials might be segmented into like gas, and the other 50 uh, in terms of their revenue. Could be segmented into oil and i think that you need these kind of entities to be able to absorb a potentially lower margins initially on but, but be able to skew it to higher margins based on some legacy form of energy and i see that that's the role and function that they're playing by the way i'm not saying that this is the greatest solution of all time i'm just saying that this seems to be something that is a little bit more economically feasible to make these things
1: possible. Yeah, I mean, that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, and, and again, my, I and my colleagues um, have argued for a long time that, that the role of, uh, of implementing a carbon tax or a carbon fee um, is not to make energy so expensive that, that people notice the, the, <laughs> the change in price. Right. Um, but to acknowledge that really the global energy economy is, is enormous. It's, it's, it's tens of billions of dollars. And even a small carbon price um, can raise hundreds of billions of dollars, um, which might be turned around and invested in innovation in the energy space in partnership with energy, recognizing that um, global energy use is just going to continue to expand around the world. Um, I mean, the other thing is if we don't have a floor price on Fossil fuels. Then, even if we are successful in displacing them with uh, renewables or nuclear or other technologies, there's still going to be massive supply. The price is going to go down, and it's going to be, um, you know, more difficult for the alternatives to to go under that price. So, I mean, there's a lot of reasons why we would want to focus on innovation to think about not just R&D, but the the whole whole process of innovation, the role of, of the private and public sectors. So yeah, I see that, you know, using using today's energy economy as the basis for building a bridge to tomorrow's um, is something that really hasn't been the focus of climate policy so far. Right. I think it's mis- yeah.
0: Well, this sounds so fascinating. I love how we kind of came up with some interesting angles and perspectives here near the end of this conversation. And I look forward to being able to keep in dialogue with you and just kind of brainstorm this situation. It, it seems to be a very interesting intellectual puzzle, but also a very real issue that's amongst the the stream of consciousness right now.
1: Yeah, if there's anything that the climate issue needs, it's, it's more discussion, more debate more opening up to, to new and different ideas because obviously what's, what's been tried so far hasn't made much of a dent and uh, <laughs> we'll have to do things differently going forward.
0: Absolutely. Well, thank you very much, Roger. I hope to uh, stay in touch with you again.
1: Thank you.